Before I introduce my expert guest today, I just want to thank everyone listening for their support with the launch of my new book, Your Baby Doesn't Come With a Book. It's now available online and in-store at all good booksellers, and I'm just blown away by the reception, by the amount of people reading it, sending in their reviews, gifting it to pregnant friends. I am filled with gratitude and pride. You can get it at Big W, Amazon, Booktopia, Dimmix, Target, The Memo, and more. I'm on a mission for all parents to be empowered when their baby arrives and thrive, not just survive, the first four weeks. Hi, I'm Dr. Daniel Golshevsky, paediatrician and father of three. Welcome to my podcast, Dr. Golly and the Experts. Each episode, I'm joined by a parent who has faced an enormous challenge in raising their child and come out the other side as the expert. In recent decades, perspectives on alcohol consumption during pregnancy have varied widely with diverse opinions and evolving knowledge. Some believe that a few glasses per week pose absolutely no harm and then others advocate for abstaining from alcohol even when attempting to conceive. The guidelines on this matter have had multiple revisions over the years, but there is no doubt that drinking while pregnant does have implications. When Sophie's eldest son was 14 years old, he was diagnosed with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, also known as FASD, and previously known as fetal alcohol syndrome. Sophie, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me here. Can you tell us about Prior to your son's arrival, tell us about your lifestyle when you fell pregnant. Yeah, I'm really glad you've asked that question because I think it's one of those things that people make assumptions when we talk about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So my lifestyle as a professional working woman, um, educated and um, enjoyed going out on a Friday or a Saturday night to socialise, to have a few alcoholic drinks with my husband or friends, usually with a meal. So not somebody, you know, I wasn't somebody who chose to drink Monday to Friday other than going out on an evening of a Friday or a Saturday night. So healthy, fit, you know, into the gym, into reasonable nutrition. So that was pretty much me. And what were the guidelines when you were pregnant with him? What were the guidelines then around conception and drinking, pregnancy and drinking? So the guidelines prior to 2009 when one of the updates happened, so the guidelines at the time were that you could drink up to two glasses of or standard drinks um, per sitting and no more than 10, I think it was, in a week. So, um, yeah, as far as I knew, um, you know, I knew not to smoke. I knew not to consider taking um, or drinking any other um, substances that could be harmful. And I knew to wash my salads and not eat pate and soft cheeses, but um, didn't know about the early potential effects of alcohol. So this is a really important distinction to make. You know, you're 100% right. There are not nice assumptions that go around when you're talking about fetal alcohol syndrome and and the spectrum, you know, a lot of people unfairly just immediately think alcoholic. But you were very, very careful. You watched what you ate. You didn't drink more than what the guidelines at the time recommended. You were healthy. You were fit. It's Mm -hmm. different to what most people assume. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, And with my story, it's not dissimilar to so many stories. And I think that's probably for me, sort of challenging the stigma and the blame and shame that goes with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is is so important. That's why I'm willing to share my story. 
And, uh, you know, I remember that first kind of visit to the GP to have pregnancy confirmed at six and a half weeks and actually sharing at that time that I was really concerned because I'd had two occasions that I could recall where I'd drunk sort of higher levels of alcohol on, on a couple of evenings, but was told at that point, look, don't worry, just don't drink to that volume again, which of course I never was planning to do anyway. So yeah, probably not an untypical story at all. We just don't realise. And then talk about, you know, his early childhood years. Talk about his what he looked like when he was born, what his behaviour was like uh, in mm-hmm. the first few years of life. Yeah. Well, I'm probably biased. Um, he was <laughs> born looking pretty gorgeous, I think, with his big blue eyes and his blonde hair. And um, he was a nine-pound baby. All I can say is thank goodness for cesarean. Because <laughs> um, his brother was bigger after. Um, and, you know, he was born full term. He was, you know, had a healthy pregnancy, nine out of ten on the APGAR scale. So, you know, all, he met all of the markers. And he, he was a very fussy baby. That's how we looked at it. Yeah, he didn't sleep very well. Uh, yeah, he really struggled to get off to sleep. And then when he did, he'd only sleep for about 40 minutes at a time. So what you're describing is an extremely common experience. So nothing looked, he didn't look unusual. He didn't act unusual compared to most newborns. Not and at all. you were none the wiser. Not at all. When was the first inkling that something was, was not right? So I would say uh, whilst he was in daycare, so he went to a lovely little family daycare, we started to hear different messages around uh, that he couldn't uh, remember things the day after he'd learned them. You know, there was quite inconsistent learning, even though he came across incredibly bright. One day, for example, he might know his colours. The next day he didn't know them. You know, he may learn new words and the next day have forgotten them. So other than his behaviour, which was always quite challenging and hyperactive, I guess, but not in a way that was really out there hyperactive, you know, it was just really always on the go. We really didn't have any idea that there was a concern in detail until he got to year six. So prior to that, we'd put in extra educational supports. We, he was involved in programs and tutoring. We managed his behaviours because unknowingly to us, we were actually putting protective factors in place because we could. So we had a really stable accommodation and you know good routines, good structure. And we'd put in the supports where his areas of most struggle were, which was learning. So it was really well masked until he got to, yeah, about the age of 11. And that's when I would kind of describe it as the wheels falling off, that suddenly the supports that were in place in the schools weren't enough. That's when we started to see other behaviours happening as well. And that's what prompted you to investigate further? Well, we actually went for diagnosis around dyslexia, dyscalculia. We'd, we'd been searching. It's not like we'd kind of sat back and said, oh, he'll be fine. Um, we'd looked at other ways as well. We'd been to developmental paediatricians, but he, kept, he didn't really meet any of the key markers in those younger years. But as that stage when executive functioning continues to grow, that's when it started to really notice the gap would widen with his peers. He'd gone from being just below average educationally to suddenly the gap really extending out. So that as his peers started to um, really develop, he wasn't in the same way academically. But you knew that he had the brains, it just wasn't coming out. The function didn't match the ability. Correct. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because his smarts were really there. So to answer your question, sorry, um, he actually, um, I would say he was 12 and we'd had all of these assessments done. There was no conclusive information other than that he was educationally at risk, significantly at risk. And I came across information that there was no minimum threshold for diagnosis of FASD when we're talking about alcohol. And I just had this moment of thinking, oh my gosh, well, I know I drank before I 
knew I was pregnant in those first six and a half weeks, probably on two or three occasions. And we know when we, you know, self-report that history and our minds aren't perfect. So maybe there were four occasions, I don't know. But I then started to look into fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. So you you looked into it? Oh, yeah. It wasn't yeah. suggested to you no, or put up as a differential diagnosis? Why? No. How did you come across it? So it was it was information, I, I, you know, doing a bit of research, trying to understand how we could better support our son with no conclusive ideas. We knew he didn't have autism. We, we knew there aren't, weren't other specific learning disorders. So coming across the information and looking at all the red flags and thinking, oh, my goodness, he meets so many of these criteria. And then looking further into it, getting the information and gathering my reports together, I was able to look, or his reports, I was able to look over and think, He's already got two and a half brain domains that are diagnosed as severely impaired. You need to have three that are severely impaired clinically for a diagnosis of FASD. So that engaged, you know, a GP referral. The GP didn't really think it was likely to be FASD because of my lower levels of alcohol use and not the continuation through pregnancy. And um, after some personal advocacy, I had to really push for it. We went to see a paediatrician who was FASD informed and at that point, she immediately said, well, we're going to say there's ADHD, which is another brain domain that comes under FASD. And um, and then she referred me for further assessments and we had the diagnosis. He was about 14 and a half when we finally got that diagnosis. You mentioned an interesting term that the paediatrician you saw was FASD aware. Many aren't. Absolutely. I was lucky enough shortly after graduating as a paediatrician, I worked in a clinic at Monash Children's Hospital, which is the the FASD clinic. So we would assess these children and and I must say, it was a particular demographic type that we most commonly saw in this clinic. You know, many of the children were wardens of the state or they had very, very, a, a very unfortunate antenatal period with a lot of substance abuse problems with the pregnant mother, alcohol abuse. Uh, These children were extremely clearly impacted. You know, we're talking one, two, three, four years of age, not 14. And being aware of this condition is so important so that you then look for it because as you mentioned, the domains where children are impacted, it's very vague and and it it's like the great masquerader. It's, you know, it's often referred to as the invisible disability because so many of the features are very common and occur mm-hmm. in completely normal children. Like, for example, most common one, growth failure, poor growth. That's extremely common with young babies. Features of ADHD, sleep disturbance, developmental delay, these things are so vague. And unless you, you've got the very obvious appearance changes that can occur with FASD, those other things can be dismissed. So, I mean, we'll talk about the appearance changes. Children who are very affected with FASD have what we call a smooth philtrum. That's the skin between your nose and your, your upper lip. Um, they don't have those little ridges like the M shape that most people have. They also have, that's in conjunction with a very thin upper lip and what we call short palpable fissures. That's the the left side of your eyeball and the right side of your eyeball. So the distance between that skin is, is shortened. So the eyeball, the globe is still normal size, but the eyes, the, the children, they don't look completely normal. So I asked you when he was born, did he look completely normal? So there's such a spectrum of how children are impacted. 
which is why it's the invisible disability, which is why it often goes so long without being diagnosed. Absolutely. And um, a lot of people with lived experience like to use the term a hidden disability because mm. they feel it's not invisible if you know what you're looking for, yes. which is really interesting. And, yeah. and I think around those facial features, we know from international and national research, there's only around about 13% of people who will have those facial features. Mm. And with them as well, it's only actually that they're formed, it's believed to be in around about five days between day 17 to 21. So if there wasn't alcohol exposure at that time, maybe alcohol wasn't available, maybe mm. it wasn't consumed at that time, maybe the levels were lower. Our son actually does have one facial feature, which is his eyes, the um, palpable fissure um, length, but that actually wasn't visible or present that you could see until he got much older. Because as he grew, he's six foot, so he's, right. there's no failure to thrive. He met every developmental milestone. But as he grew... His eyes didn't grow at the same rate as everything else. So it's not really obvious, but a paediatrician was able to diagnose that. So I think um, when we don't know what we're looking for, when the questions aren't asked, and generally that's because health professionals and other service providers are, are scared to ask. They don't want to stigmatize the mother mm. or the parents. They don't want to blame or shame anyone. But the reality is, you know, for me as a mother, I was looking for answers for 14 years and desperately thinking, this is me being a helicopter parent. I could see there was something in those early days. I just didn't know what that something was. And if only somebody had considered, what if there was alcohol exposure? What might that look like? Because whilst it's hidden and whilst it's a spectrum disorder and it could be really very different for everyone, the reality is, is that each individual, particularly as they mature and go through that adolescent period into adulthood, the expectations of society grow and that individual is not able to meet those expectations mm. without supports and accommodations. And that's why we see such huge rates in the justice system. That's why we see such huge rates in the child protection system of individuals with FASD, um, diagnosed and undiagnosed, because nobody is looking to ask that question, unless, like you've said, Dr. Golly, that it's really obvious. Mm. And there must so. be just thousands of oh. children worldwide who are, who are diagnosed with autism or ADHD Absolutely. And there isn't that unifying diagnosis. So in your case with your son, you and your husband effectively almost self-diagnosed this. That's one thing. But then you were given the official formal diagnosis. How did you handle that? I think when probably the hardest phase was when I first discovered the information around that there was no minimum threshold of alcohol exposure. That was kind of like a lightning bolt moment. Because I suddenly thought, oh my goodness, I would be incredibly ignorant if I actually looked at all of the symptoms he has and the signs and then thought that alcohol couldn't have played a part. There'll be many people out in society who don't end up with a FASD diagnosis or who may not be as severely impacted, but who will have been prenatally exposed to alcohol and maybe don't reach their full potential because of that. For us, my husband was very supportive, um, is very supportive. And he was there with me at the time when I was drinking. We both had the same knowledge. We both had the same beliefs that when we tried for a baby, we would stop drinking alcohol, both of us, for that first period. We just didn't know we were going to be pregnant so early, I guess, is, is the key there. So I can't say there is no guilt because there is. But the way I deal with that is by sharing my story and talking to other biological parents and caregivers so that I know that we are making a difference. I know that we are able to share our story and then hope that other people aren't in that same place because as shameful as it feels or it felt for me when I first found out, 
the reality is by having an early diagnosis, it would have changed many things for our son. I mean, he's amazing and he's doing so well. But early diagnosis, we know with any disorder, particularly developmental disorders, makes a massive difference to life outcomes. Because of the implementation of early intervention. Absolutely. Mm. There's also the, the decade that you spent worrying and searching and reading and I imagine yeah. hanging over your every thought. And the angst that goes with that of thinking that I was being that helicopter parent, that my expectations were too high, that I wasn't focusing enough on his strengths and you know, was expecting too much of him. Because my husband and I are both, you know, uni educated and I guess we thought that our children would follow in a similar trajectory and our younger child you know, will be doing his ATAR next year and is, is very different to our older child. They've both got amazing strengths um, and I'm so proud of them both. And your younger child is not impacted? He's not. But you know, Dr. Golly, the only reason he isn't is because I had a really active two-year-old when he was born not because my knowledge had changed, but just that my social circumstances The opportunities didn't present themselves. Absolutely. Yeah. I didn't go out drinking on a Friday or a Saturday night because I had a two-year-old at home who kept me very busy and never slept. So it, he could easily have been exposed to alcohol, but only wasn't because our lifestyle had changed. I want to focus more on parenting styles. Your husband is ex-military uh, he's a nurse, so um, I'm already making assumptions about the way that he would parent. So do you have different parenting styles and did that help? Did you have to change them? Were you advised to change them? How did that go in the first few years? Uh, I would say my husband's military background was probably amazingly important in terms of how we set our entire parenting regime, if you like. so oh, Because it's structured and ordered and predictable. So yeah. Very structured, very routine. Our son always went to bed at exactly the same time, right up until he would have been probably about 12 or 13. And as much to his annoyance, but, you know, very structured, very careful around phone hygiene, sleep hygiene, uh, putting things in place so that routine was really important. And I mean, I didn't know until years later until I learned about more about FASD that routine and structure are really everything. They're kind of the the core of what helps individuals. And um, I would say we were very on the same page until our son got to about 11 or 12, you know, that testosterone time when things are happening. And uh, it can be quite common with individuals with FASD and certainly was for our son that he would always want to challenge more than just the average child challenging, you know, um, structures, rules, things like that. So the pushback was incredibly intense. And um, I'm using nice, positive language when I say that. <laughs> and for my husband, he'd always been in a process of you say something, you do it. You respect people. It's expected from you. You know, there's this kind of age delineation of parent child thing. I was kind of working in a different way. I had a, a sort of more of a social services background and would move to that space. And I have to say, once we actually got the diagnosis and my husband was able to understand that this wasn't our son being willfully difficult, it wasn't that he was refusing and kind of stamping his feet and saying, I won't do something. He realized just as I was coming on board in this space too, that actually our son couldn't do certain things. And, you know, it could be as benign as emptying the dishwasher. It could be as benign as remembering to bring your plate to the dishwasher or the sink. But when you, as a parent, and I know all parents will listen to this saying, well, that's what my kids do anyway. Yeah. But it, if you can imagine, I kind of describe it almost as if adolescence on steroids from the point of the view one of level all, up. 
Abs off. Yeah. Multiple, multiple, multiple levels, levels. Up. multiple levels up, and remembering this is a severe impairment in neurological domains for our son. Even though he only had the exposure of alcohol, he had, he actually has severe impairment in the five domains that he's had assessed so far. And and you also have to factor in that the way you would manage a meltdown in a neurotypical child is one thing, but that may not necessarily work. In your case. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I would say for our particular scenario, we actually have been very lucky. His emotional regulation is not actually that impacted. He is able, he has the coping skills, I guess, that we've helped him to build to deal with that. But many, many families I've engaged with, that's probably one of the huge issues is the emotional regulation and meltdown. What about his younger brother? What's What was their relationship like in childhood, when yeah. there's always a degree of friction and sibling, uh, you know, rivalry, fighting, etc., and how has it changed to now as they're essentially adults? I'm glad you've asked both of those questions because the the negativity around my early answer in the early years it was really hard to see. It didn't matter what we did, how we tackled situations. Our eldest son would quite badly bully our younger son really negative, nasty language, targeting his appearance and things like that, that we realised retrospectively was all about building himself up because he could see that as his younger brother was growing, he was able to do things he couldn't do. He was overtaking him. Absolutely. And that became really apparent probably when his younger brother got to about 10 or 11 and he was sort of 13. The difference that happened is that when our older son got the diagnosis, our younger son has had to be, I guess, really quite mature and resilient. We've put a lot of effort into building his resilience because we knew we couldn't stop it happening. Didn't matter what we tried. Um, the consequences and, you know, just cause and effect don't seem to sit well with people with FASD. They don't necessarily understand that. So um, building our younger son up, when he got to age of about 13, he started to understand his brother better. He understood the diagnosis when we talked through all of those challenges and we are so blessed, honestly. Like the relationship they've got now is fantastic because probably helps that my younger son's six foot five and about 85 kilos and ripped. Um, <laughs> no, no one's bullying him. <laughs> he ain't being bullied, right? Um, but also just that level of respect because my eldest son has now been able to see where he's at. He sees my younger son can keep his confidence. So my older son will tell him things. He knows he won't tell mum and dad. And he'll only tell mum and dad if it's something that's a really serious concern. And he handles that very well. Did the, did the younger brother, as they got older, protect the older brother? Uh, not externally, but I think he would. And he certainly has his back with us as parents. He often makes me realise that I need to handle a situation differently. And um, you know, just, I'm just thinking of last night when my older son went to go to bed mentioned his brother's name and said, oh, you know, where is he? I make sure I say goodnight. And every night he always comes through to say goodnight because he can't bear the, the fact that something could happen overnight and he won't have said goodbye. Like, yeah, they've actually got a really special relationship now. It's lovely. The heartbreaking aspect from your point of view, as you described, is that you followed the guidelines at the time. How have they changed? Well, I am really pleased to say that in 2020, the National Health and Medical Research Council updated the guidelines and they now state that women who are planning a pregnancy, who are pregnant or who are breastfeeding should not drink any alcohol. So that's really positive. The message is starting to get out there more. 
but that's something that really needs to be promoted far more widely because I think we tend to sort of lean towards our own peer groups, our families, and we follow in. I can't tell you how many times I've heard people say, oh, but my mum drank and I'm fine, or my sister drank and her baby's fine. It's really, really common. It's, it's hard though because, you know, we talk about the, the current advice through some channels is don't don't drink during fertility journey, conception, pregnancy, and we run the risk of creating anxiety for those who perhaps weren't trying to fall pregnant or, as you said, didn't think they'd fall pregnant that quickly and then are worried throughout the entire pregnancy and potentially first few years of life that that one drink they had when they didn't know they were three hours pregnant may have had an impact. In actual fact, I had a conversation with a colleague of mine. We were doing a caesarean section this morning together, Tom Manley from Create Health. I said to him, what, what, what do you advise? What do you tell your patients? And he said, look, there's no safe limit. We just don't know. The research is not there. He is generally more relaxed about it, you know, and he says, you know, ha- having a sip of, of, a, of a toast, he's, he's not phased by that. And that is the advice that a lot of obstetricians still follow. And there are still organizations that say a little bit here, a little bit there is okay. But we do know that alcohol does cross the placenta easily. It's not metabolized by the baby. So the levels are higher in the baby than, than they are in the mum. But it's a, it's a really, it's a fine balance to walk where you want to increase awareness, but not increase uh, worry and, and angst. Absolutely. And I think, like you say, the last thing I would ever want to do is to concern anyone, to cause stress for anyone, for them to feel that, oh my goodness, you know, I have had alcohol um, during my pregnancy in the early stages or at any point. And the NoFASD Australia helpline was where I went to and I wanted more advice and support. But I think the key factor is, is that, like you say, there is no proof. There is no proof that says that you can't have one single drink. But there is proof that just one single drink can make a difference. Mm. So I think the message has to be, you know, wherever possible, when somebody can make a choice, it's to stop drinking before you even start trying. And that doesn't get the guys off the hook either because there are medical issues associated with male sperm and alcohol, particularly at high levels. So, you know, stop drinking three weeks, three months before you even plan for a baby. And we know around about 50% of pregnancies are unplanned in Australia. And at the end of the day, we can't change things. When things happen, you know, life is as it is. We know that alcohol is prevalent in society. It's a social um, tool. It's a social connector. But it's, you know, if people don't have the actual right information, how can they make those informed choices? I think that's the key. What everyday tasks now at the age of 18 does your son struggle with? What, what are some examples? So for him, what he would struggle with, I'll give you an example of something that happened last week. His dad said to him, could you chuck the bacon on the Barbie, mate? Sounds very Aussie, didn't it? And um, (laughs) so my son actually put the whole pile of bacon on the barbecue. He didn't separate them. Very literal. rasher at a time and put them out. Very Mm. literal. Pro-social friendships, being misled, being incredibly vulnerable to manipulation by people uh, are all things that can be a situation. And planning, uh, making decisions and making good decisions to give you an example in my household, so it gives you a bit more of context, my 15-year-old son uh, will cook up his chicken in a slow cooker on a Sunday evening with yeah, some engagement from me. And uh, he'll do that, and then he does his lunch every single day, gets things out of the cupboard, chooses what he wants, and heats it up, and he's done. His older brother can't do that. Not that he can't, 
but he needs someone stood with him to mm. walk him through the steps so that he can actually concentrate and focus and process. So, for example, if I was to open the cupboard and leave all of the options there available for him to choose from, he'd be so overwhelmed by trying to make a decision. Too many he options. Would, he just wouldn't choose anything. Yeah. He'll go without anything at all. So I actually lay out on the side the options that are available uh, and only give him a couple of choices. Now, that kind of sounds really limiting and restrictive, but that way it means he can make a decision far more easily. And that so talks I'm, to his you know, parenting styles, as we discussed earlier, the structure, mm-hmm. and he, he's much more comfortable within those boundaries. It's not restrictive, it's actually enabling. Exactly right. Yep, he can make those choices because the, the options are so far reduced. Something I will share is that uh, we're going to be grandparents in four weeks, ah, which is exciting. Fantastic. It's lovely. It wasn't planned. And um, as he's 18 and his girlfriend's only a year older, it wasn't what was expected. But we've had to move, we've chosen to move house, to build part of the house into a two-bedroom unit so that they will still pay bills. They still have to do all of the things that would be expected of them as raising a baby. But if we were to have insisted that they moved home, and they had to pay rent and things like that, trying to budget, trying to prioritise, trying to control the impulse around wanting something and then following that dream is something he doesn't have the ability to do. Yeah, and the forward do. planning, that executive oh, function. Absolutely, mm. absolutely. So whilst I'm very pleased to say I've got no concerns around how they will care for a baby, it would be things like, let's say the baby was on formula, remembering to have formula remembering to wash the bottles and sterilise in time, remembering to go and get nappies and wet wipes and things like that, little things like that. But for him, probably the biggest challenges are around sleep and getting a really good restorative sleep, but then being able to um, execute daily tasks uh, that anybody would expect of him at his age. And was he able to complete school and work? So we took him out of school at the beginning of year 11. Mm -hmm. He blows my mind in terms of his resilience and how he managed to stay there but it was quite clear whilst he got to year 10 that he wasn't progressing he wasn't learning and we felt as his parents that the best thing for him to ensure his self-esteem continued to be supported because mental ill health concerns are huge for individuals with FASD particularly as they age through the years Um, we felt that his real strength and we know his real strengths are with physically doing and seeing you know, if things are role modelled to him, he's very good at grasping those. It's a different learning style for him. And his recall in those settings is better. Absolutely. Right. Because it's kinesthetic, it's hands-on, mm. it's all of body. So he's actually doing an apprenticeship, which is around boiler making and welding. And honestly, he blows my mind, you know, like the things that he can do. And he loves his motorbikes. So he can strip an engine and rebuild his motorbike because he's watched it on mm. YouTube hundreds, thousands of times. If I gave him a manual to do that, he wouldn't get past page one. Not because he can't read, because his reading ability is age appropriate, but he can't comprehend what he's reading and his working memory and his processing is is affected. So a lot of these things that you're describing, I mean, we we touched on the misdiagnosis earlier. Mm -hmm. A lot of the things you're describing, it's almost like, you know, dipping your toe into ADHD and a little sprinkling of autism and yep. I use those words loosely, yep. um, has he been trialled on medication that you would normally use for children with ADHD? Yeah, so um, he went on, on Ritalin um, when he was, you know, as a stimulant when he first was diagnosed with ADHD and his learning in school, I can remember he sent me a screenshot of two pages he'd just written, which 
would never happen. He would struggle to put his name on the page. Yeah. So the Ritalin worked really well for him for about three weeks and then it wasn't working for him. And sadly, sort of the the chemistry of the brain and how the alcohol impacts at different stages um, in utero really can depend on how well medications work, how long they work, um, because his ADHD is a subtype of FASD. That's how they clinically describe it. And it doesn't therefore behave the same way in response to medicines as you would expect with routine ADHD. Yep. So um, that worked for a few weeks, but then it made him incredibly anxious. So it really kind of revved him up from the stimulant effect. So we tried him on other medication and that worked much better, but then it made him very drowsy. And sadly, he would just go to sleep at school, even though we were making sure he got good sleep as best we could. Um, he would go to sleep at school and the teachers would just leave him asleep because it meant he was quiet and not distracting. Yeah, but not learning. People. Yeah, it's such a balance. So, but yeah, I'm really hopeful for his future. As long as we can continue to provide the supports that him and his partner need, then I'm very hopeful for his outcomes. Oh, he's very um, lucky to have you. Oh, and we're lucky to have him too. What about socially? Are there social interaction, social skill deficits that, that make that challenging for him? Yeah, he's never been particularly bullied. He's never struggled in that area so much because he's very charismatic. He's very engaging. He doesn't truly have long-term friendships, which, you know, are sustainable. And I think a lot of that is around his dismaturity. So, you know, he can appear very much that of an 18-year-old, but then he will come out with comments and suggestions, which you'd expect someone who are 11 or 12. So there's less and less tolerance, obviously, as, as lads and girls mature through the ages. He can have amazingly engaging conversations with people if he feels safe with them. It's kind of a bit like that um, hypersensitivity-like trauma. So if he sees somebody who gives him eye contact, if they show they're interested, if they show they want to engage with him and they can talk about something that he knows about, he can have the most amazing conversation and the feedback will be, what a lovely young man. (laughs) However... If somebody were to make him feel less comfortable and were to talk about something he doesn't know, he doesn't have those social skills to be able to demonstrate that, yeah, okay, thanks, but no thanks in a nice way. It would literally just be a shutdown. And that person's perspective would be, gosh, what a rude young man. So you meet him for the first time. You you, mm. you wouldn't think something is amiss here. Absolutely not. So he he seldom has to explain himself. Does he have the insight into FASD and does he ever own it, talk about it, tell people, explain it to people? Never outside of his dad and I. So absolutely not. He is really still at this point because bear in mind he got the diagnosis at 14. That's another huge thing to you know recommend around early diagnosis. Is he'd fully developed his personality, his friendship groups and where he sat in that hierarchy and where he sat as the lad, you know. Um, so he never talks about it externally. Internally with us, yes, he does. I'm just trying to think of the example from a couple of days ago where he said something to me and he said, I think that's because of how my brain works, mum, and that, you know, because of this, I get more worked up about this or I, I focus more on this. That's fascinating. But, mm. but despite this, he has friends. He's mm-hmm. in a relationship. Mm-hmm. He is progressing. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't, and I think something, you know, that is this... Every individual with FASD is unique. Mm. Every individual has different challenges. Every individual has different strengths. And I think when we know that, when we can focus on the strengths, that's that makes all the difference. And for him, he's found his niche. And we're just really blessed that he's incredibly resilient and wants to keep on keeping on. It's great. 
What has been specifically difficult for you as a mother, as a wife? What's been the most challenging part? And second part to that question, what advice would you give to another mother who's beginning this journey? Wow. Like I said previously, probably the hardest thing was realising that drinking alcohol before I knew I was pregnant could have caused a brain-based disability for my son. That was very hard. And I very much doubt that will ever leave me. But the reality is I know that you can't change the past. So the way I've looked at that is that when you know better, you do better. And I think that's why I'm so proactive about raising awareness for people who can stop and choose not to drink. So that would be probably the first thing. I think probably struggles were knowing there was something that my son needed more support with or many things he needed more support with. Going to clinicians to ask for advice and support and to friends and family, but everybody feeling that really I was just, my expectations were too high. I was trying to be a bit of a perfectionist around him. So that that was a challenge throughout for a very long time. And then I think post-diagnosis, there were positives because it meant my husband and I could work in the same way with the same understanding. And what that brought for me and for my son as an offshot was the advocacy knowing that there was an absolute reason why he couldn't do things, not that he wouldn't do things, that was transformational. I feel the support I've had from NoFASD Australia has been kind of like a cloud in terms of there's that wraparound. You talk to people who actually get it. You don't feel like you're this person that's saying things and other people will tell you, well, yes, but that's normal. That's what all kids do. That's what all teenagers do because you know it's ramped to a much higher level. And now I think the hardest thing is watching how amazing our son is and how well he does, but knowing how much effort that takes him to do things every day. You know, I'm not being very specific because there's so many things. But then when things, when he passed his manual driving test on the second go, blew us away and... I know many people who can't do that after multiple Multiple. attempts. (laughs) But because, again, it's physical and he can feel the vibrations of the engine, he can understand the engine and how it feels and it moves. He's, you know, he he just sails through. He's, you know, there's certain things he's so excellent at. So I think my, I'm so hopeful. We're so hopeful for his future, but there's always that thing, that, that thing inside your head that you know, just one little decision that was a bad decision, a poor timed decision could be one that unravels things for him more so than other adolescents because of where he is with his brain-based difficulties. And and now that you're part of this community, raising awareness and, and spending time with other mothers and fathers and, and people directly impacted by FASD, what are the, some of the things you've seen and learned from the community? I think I have been really blessed to meet so many amazing people, knowing that when you have a child who may have FASD, that they are showing signs, or that have a FASD diagnosis, is that A, we know early intervention makes a world of difference to outcomes. We know that individuals with FASD do learn, and they can be incredibly smart, but they learn differently, and we need to do differently. We need to put those things in place to make sure the accommodations are there, and that We change expectations in society to meet that hidden disability 
and support this physical brain-based disability in the way we would if it was a seen physical disability. Mm. Mm. And I think I've been so fortunate on this journey that I've met so many families, parents, adoptive foster parents, but also biological parents too. And whenever I talk about my luxury, my ability to be able to stop drinking alcohol because it was never an issue for me, I was a social drinker. I think the women I've met that inspire me the most would be those mums who were alcohol dependent when they fell pregnant, who have been brave enough, courageous enough and strong enough to come through that dependency with clinical support, advice and therapy and then realise that they have something else that they need to do and that was to consider that their child may have been affected by the alcohol exposure to then see how the difference that early interventions can make, the difference that letting go of the fear around the blame and the stigma and knowing that we all do things because we can't necessarily choose them. You know, I didn't choose to drink alcohol and for my son to be exposed. Somebody doesn't choose to become alcohol dependent, but feeling that they can reach out, feeling they can access support, and I think probably the No Fasting Helpline is one of those spaces where there is no judgment. It's confidential. People can share and they can get more information and advice and support. And uh, I, I will just give that number because it's a free phone number. Um, Please do. And we'll also put it in the show notes as well. Great. Thank you. And, and that's one 800 And I think it's really important to know there is somewhere to go to get more information. They have a website as well, uh, as well as the Every Moments Matters website that can be... Uh, Googled and you can find out more. So as the expert in the room, what has this whole experience from the very beginning pre-conception to now, what has it taught you? Wow, so much, I think. I think one of those things is to trust your gut. And if you know there's something, reach out to people in the areas that you think that something can be. I'm not necessarily talking about FASD, but I went for a lot of clinical advice at different stages. And I think that some was positive, some was good, some wasn't. And in the area of FASD, like you've said, Dr. Golly, you're FASD informed and that makes the world of difference. Sadly, it's not the fault of the clinician. It's not the fault of the service provider. It's just the content isn't there um, in the studies that people do generally. Uh, It's just not there at the, the level it needs to be. So I think one thing is trust your gut. I think another would be Focusing on the strengths and seeing how you can really build somebody's, an individual's personality, how you can build what they can do and support the things they can't do makes the world of difference. We just have got to look at society and alcohol and drinking alcohol and having sex are two things that happen a lot Mm. and let's not be scared to have that conversation and make sure we separate the two if there's not protection involved because people aren't going to stop drinking alcohol anytime soon and they're probably not going to stop having sex anytime soon so there will be babies made so let's you know we just need to make sure people are aware of that message I think that's key Uh, I just this is I mean we have incredible guests on this podcast, but none more important than you, because this is a topic that's very difficult to talk about. And it's very difficult to find mothers who will talk about it because of the stigma associated. And it's just, I'm, I'm so grateful that you've got the courage to do this, to talk about it, to own it. 
to talk about your guilt, to talk about your process and your journey. And I'm so, so grateful that you're pleased to talk about it because it will, these conversations, uh, these podcasts and spreading the word does reduce stigma. It does bring people to GPs and say, hey, what about this? I just heard about this condition. Is it possible? And I think it's absolutely wonderful for those who have children and are worried just as important is for those who are planning to have children and abstain because of what they're hearing today. Thank you. Thank you so much for giving me the platform to do this. Um, It makes a difference. Thank you. For more information on FASD, please check out the links in the show notes. And to enjoy more parenting stories like this one, please like, follow, subscribe and share Dr. Golly and the Experts wherever you listen. For any information on my sleep programs or new book, head to drgolly.com. And just before you go, I have a small favour to ask. If you're enjoying this podcast, I'd love it if you could rate and review the show so that more people can find us and hear more incredible stories just like Sophie's. Sophie's.